HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Emmy Cheese, specialty cheese from Switzerland made with heart and passion. For more information, visit meusa.com. Ever heard of a popcorn-driven robot? This week on Meet and 3, we're bringing you stories about the intersection of food and tech. We're interested in building swarms of many cheap, small robots and powering them and driving them forward with as little effort and as little energy as possible. We cover tech by land. Imagine if you could cut fresh microgreens onto your salad and eat it while the greens are still fresh and nutritious and delicious and alive. That dream is real. We cover tech by sea. We're building software-based business services to help shellfish growers uh, manage and grow their business. And we cover tech in the social media stratosphere. So it's not really necessarily an indictment on food media or, or media consumption at all. It's really, it's, it's how the robots decided that they were going to weight human interaction. Tune in and get techie this week on Meet and 3. Available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Cutting the Curd on the Heritage Radio Network. This is your host, Elena Santigade. Today I'm on site in Pittsburgh at the 2018 American Cheese Society Conference. This yearly conference is fun and inspiring for many reasons, but one of the most one of the best elements is the chance to connect with other cheese people from around the country who you don't get to see very often. In that spirit, I'm thrilled to be sitting here with Gordon Edgar, a certified cheese celebrity and repeat guest on Cutting the Curd. Thanks for taking the time to chat, Gordon. Can you really be a certified cheese celebrity? I'm not really sure that's, that's a thing. I am certifying you as a cheese celebrity. Okay, so listeners, if you haven't listened yet, be sure to check out the two Cutting the Curd book review episodes where Diane chats with Gordon about each of his books. The first, Cheesemonger, Life on the Wedge, and the second, Cheddar, A Journey to the Heart of America's Most Iconic Cheese. Those are episodes number 155 and 241. So, aside from perfectly penning the cheesemonger experience 
and diving deep into the history of the much-beloved cheddar cheese. Gordon is the cheese buyer at the famed worker-owned cooperative Rainbow Grocery in San Francisco. A few weeks ago, Yuri and Britt of the Park Slope Food Co-op at Brooklyn came on the show, and ever since, my mind has been all abuzz thinking about alternative approaches to retail in food. So, Gordon, let's get to it. Let's get to it. Okay, Rainbow <laughs> Grocery, for our listeners who don't know it, what's your, like, elevator pitch recap? What's going on? What is it? Why is it so special? Well, you know, we're, um, we're San Francisco's largest independent natural food store, you know, so that's number one. Um, number two is that we're kind of one of the last survivors of uh, this thing that was called the People's Food System in San Francisco. Um, and we've grown from being a small volunteer uh, volunteer-run grocery store that all followed the same guru uh, to being like a 215-person worker-owned cooperative, one of the biggest worker-owned uh, businesses in the country. Wow. Okay, so it started from volunteer basis. And is, was it sort of like a, like a buying club, like a group of wackos who had a truck and went and got food? Yes. <laughs> that's, that's great. That seems to be... That seems to be a constant among well, successful food co-ops. The, the, way, the way that it really worked was um, in, the, in the late 60s, I mean, food is always a political issue, right? Yeah. But um, in the late 60s, things were especially politicized, especially in the Bay Area. Um, you know, there was a lot of, you know, there was a lot of stuff, Black Panthers, you know, feeding children programs. Um, there was a lot of stuff in San Francisco. Also, these um, programs where people would just get food and serve it to people in the parks. Mm -hmm. and, um, and that happened through, the, like, the kind of mid to late 60s. Um, and there was buying clubs all over the place. And, um, but what people found was uh, two things. One is that uh, with volunteer buying clubs, there was often a lot of turnover. Um, like it was it, the, the kind of responsibilities started falling on the same small group of people. Right. Um, also, they felt like, you know, less packaged, more affordable, more healthy food should be available to everyone. So, um, and this is telescoping history a little bit, right. but basically people decided instead of these kind of volunteer, you had to be a member buying clubs, they would start um, a series of storefronts um, that would sell food in different neighborhoods. Um, and the idea is if you came into our store in the Mission and you lived out in the Sunset, you'd be like, you know, you should start your own store over there. Um, different, different economic climate at the time. It was very easy to start a store at that point. Very different from today, but that's the reality. Right. Um, and the last thing to say about the people's food system is, you know, they, they, it was really an attempt to change the food system. Um, it had not just storefronts, but distribution collectives, trucking collectives, and producer collectives. And um, it um, and unfortunately did not last very long. It, by, the, by the end of the 70s, there was um, a, lot of, a lot of problems, a lot of infighting, and just, you know, the whole kind of uh, food movement was like kind of falling apart, basically. Yeah, I mean, it, it, when we were chatting with the Park Slope Food Co-op crew, it, it was sort of a similar history on the East Coast in terms of like tons of co-ops starting in the 70s and the longevity basically boiling down to just a small handful that actually made it. Yeah. So, so Park Slope is a member-owned cooperative with staff sort of more of a... Um, a traditional like staffing and management structure, although uh, traditional should not be the word I use because it's that that's professional. Uh, scratch that. Yes, that's that's much better. Professional uh, uh, management and staff description. But tell tell us tell the listeners a little bit more about what a worker owned cooperative actually means. Uh, and you know, in the Rainbow Grocery example, uh, like how do the logistics work out? 
Well, you know, in the Park Slope Food Cop, which is an amazing place, like, you know, it's, it's really, really a great example for everybody. Um, you know, you have to be a member um, to shop there. And if you're a member, you also have to work to keep your membership. Right. That's, that's how theirs works. With us, um, to anybody coming in off the street, we're a normal grocery store. Ah. Um, but if you work there, you have to be an owner. Um, and you have to, huh. you have to, you basically get hired like any other job, but you have to become a member. And, um, and then the people who own it are the 215 of us who happen to be, you know, that, the amount of people we need to staff the store. Wow. And so does owning it as a, as a worker, as a worker owner, are you also putting a financial investment into the business? Um, yeah, the, uh, <laughs> the, um, Listeners, the reason we're giggling is we are sitting in the middle of the conference center in Pittsburgh, and all of Gordon's fans and and friends, big big fans of yours, I'm sure. Um, um, yeah, well, you know, it's 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 a little. Our history is a little more confusing than I made it because our co-op started with um, with basically about ten people who followed the same guru and all were brought together in the belief of right livelihood, which means basically, you know, doing good things in the world and, you know, putting good things into the community. Wow. What a concept. Yeah. Um, and uh, that rainbow became secular pretty early on. It only took about like a year. And this is back in the seventies, like 75, 74, right. 75. But, um, but we were incorporated as a not for profit religious institution huh. for a long time. Um, eventually, there became a law where we could actually incorporate as a worker-owned cooperative, which is our legal structure. Got it. And, um, and we took advantage of that um, and changed our, our, our bylaws and all that to reflect that. But because we'd been around for a while, we didn't need kind of the equity kick in. We already had uh, The initial buy-in yeah. wasn't as necessary. Yeah, exactly. So our buy-in to the store is only when you've been there about nine months, you pass a series of orientations and tests. Um, and get voted in as a member, you only have to buy $10 voting share, one $10 voting share. Wow. Um, and then you're an owner of the business. And um, the important thing, I think, to, to know about co-ops, and you probably cover this in Park Slope, but, but, you know, it's like we have, no matter how many shares you might have invested in Rainbow, you only have one voting share. There's only 215 votes. So one, one worker member, one, one worker. vote. Exactly. Um, so, but basically what happens is as you're there, you get designated every year at the end of the year your share of the profit that the store makes. And it's based mostly, uh, I'm simplifying a little bit, it's based mostly on, you know, I do like an hour and a half orientation on this and we just don't have time for that. But, but it's based mostly on your hour's work compared to everybody else's hour's work. Ah, okay. So I might work, you know, 0.5 hours of all hours worked and then I'll roughly get 0.5% of all the profit. So it's almost a sweat equity sort of structure in that sense for profits. Exactly, exactly. Huh. And then, you know, because a business can't run, run without capital, we keep a certain amount of that in the business. Right. Um, and so we get that, we get some amount, of, amount awarded to us in cash and some in shares. And then we actually can't draw out our shares until they reach a certain amount. So that's another way we keep equity in the business. Ah, so almost so, like a vesting schedule or exactly, something. Exactly, exactly. And, and so while we only have a $10 voting share, you know, um, when you've been there as long as me, you have to keep in about $30,000 in the business. Okay. So. Okay. So interesting. So now how can, how did you guys know how to legally set that up? I mean, is it like somebody had a buddy who's a lawyer? It Was it uh, kind of 
sketched out on a napkin for a while, and then at some point someone's buddy was a lawyer? Uh, no, actually, you know, it's funny. It was, um, it was yeah, like I said, for a long time we were a not-for-profit religious institution. Long after that didn't really apply to us. But, um, but uh, the laws were changing, and this is state by state, so, you know, your right. state might be very different. But in California there became a statute where you could incorporate as a worker-owned cooperative. Mm. And the lawyer who wrote that statute happened to be live in Berkeley and know people who work uh-huh. in the store. So he was our lawyer, basically, who incorporated us as a worker-owned cooperative. It was very handy. Very convenient. <laughs> very, very convenient. The writer of the law <laughs> happened to be the guy who helps you. Uh... Makes you feel like a big business or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you had, an, you had an insider guy there, Gordon. <laughs> okay, so um, here's a question. What and maybe, I'm not sure if you are privy to say, but can you give us some sense of what your yearly sales are like at Rainbow? Oh, yeah, we, we sell, our, our store sells, I, did, I honestly don't know what it is for last, we don't have our report for last year yet, but it's around $54 million a year. Wow. And do you have, uh, I, I imagine you have a sense of what the cheese department is doing of that. Yeah, we do about 4% of the sales at the store. Four percent, awesome. Two yeah, percent of the footprint, four percent of the sales. Ah, that's a I'd good like ratio. To point that out. Yep, yep. <laughs> Im- important ratio there, Gordon. All the other buyers out there know what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> and what about so staff-wise? Tell us a little bit about the cheese department at Rainbow. Well, um, I, also, let me explain Rainbow a little bit too, because I think this would be helpful to understand. Okay, great. Um, you know, everybody when they get hired to Rainbow gets hired into a home department, okay. um, of which cheese is one of fourteen departments. Um, some of those departments are sales-oriented, and some of them are not sales-oriented. Like, we have an office department, we have a maintenance department, cashier department. None of those generate revenue, but they're necessary for us to exist, right? Um, so everybody gets hired into one of those departments, and that's where most of your day-to-day work is and most of your day-to-day interaction with other coworkers. Um, so it's sort of like a shift team in a way. Well, a, 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 a like context. Okay. Okay. Good. Good. Um, <laughs> listeners, listeners, don't try to map this onto your normal understanding. Clean slate here. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, but I mean, the best way to think about it is it's almost like it's 14 different collectives within one structure. Because uh, okay. um, all the departments are pretty semi-autonomous. There's certain agreements we've made as a whole. I right. mean, our store was founded by vegetarian hippies. Uh, we do not carry meat in our store, which right. comes as a shock to a lot of people, including many customers. Yes, that means no prosciutto, people. <laughs> no prosciutto. Um, luckily for my future in cheese, even though I was not involved in 1974, um, they decided that since they were vegetarian, it was important not to um, get too picky about rennet and cheese. Yeah, because you could have a big problem on your hands. Well, they just said vegetarians needed protein, so rennet would be an acceptable thing, luckily, Phew. in the future. <laughs> <laughs> um, but... Um, <laughs> so, so basically, um, you know, there's certain things we decide as a whole in the whole store, and that's all 215 of us either on a ballot vote or being in the same room voting on something. And that's kind of like a bylaws sort of situation? or uh, Well, bylaws are actually even more serious, uh-huh. but it depends. On, we, okay. have, we have a set of bylaws, which are honestly pretty generic because we yeah. didn't want to change them, but it's very hard to change those. We have to, it's uh, two-thirds of the membership has to vote to change a bylaw. I don't think vegetarianism is actually in our bylaws. That, that okay. would change with a majority vote. 
Okay. But I don't see it happening anytime soon. No. I mean, it's hard. You know, it's like, I mean, I eat meat. But, you know, it's it's like you have people who have been working there 40 years who are committed vegetarians and, and kind of a slap in the face as if we'd, like, turned around and voted it. Down. Yeah, plus, like, there's something to the original intention there, you know? And there's there's ways to get meat. I, you know, but I'd like to get it with my discount. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> it's a bummer for you. It is. It is. You know, I've got to go to somewhere else to shop, you know. But, uh, but yeah, but, you know, it's, it's, but in the department itself, in the cheese department, um, we, um, you know, we really, you know, I'm the buyer. It's, it's funny because everybody knows me and, it, and people really want to treat me when I go out into the world like I'm the boss or the manager. And, mm-hmm. and it's actually really not the case. It's just I was the only one who could put up with schmoozing at first. <laughs> when I first started going to ACS, the ACS was local. It was in, you know. Right. Rohnert Park was the first one I went to. And, uh, you know, that's just up the road. And, and, um, and it's like nobody else wanted to go and, like, schmooze with people in suits. So <laughs> I said, well, I'll do it, you know. And, um, and so kind of. And thus began yeah, your thus career began as the, the cheese buyer. Exactly. <laughs> but um, in terms of, you know, organizational structure, I am the, I am the buyer. And, um, and that is a job that I, my department has voted me into. Right. That is um, a specific role. But it doesn't mean that you're the manager. Right. Exactly. I don't have, I don't have final say on, uh, you know, personnel decisions. I don't have say in schedule. I'm going to have say, but I don't have the final say right. in those things. I um, got to say, Gordon, sounds pretty good. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. Actually. I mean, <laughs> best of both worlds <laughs> here. Shh, don't tell anybody that. <laughs> Too bad this is recording on the radio. No, but I mean, we all take turns doing those things. Like, I'm, I'm currently... Currently on a hiring on the hiring committee, so that means hiring. That also means firing if people ah, are not working it. out in the first few months. You know, so we just take turns doing that stuff. But my job is a job that's like codified by you know these are the decisions I'm authorized to make. Mm-hmm. You know, and the, and things I'm responsible to do, and that's what I do. Wow, so, so cool. Okay, um, you know we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back for more about Rainbow Grocery and Gordon Edgar and. Uh, We'll get into some more activist cheese talk. (laughs) Uh, Listeners, stay tuned. We'll be right back. Today's program was brought to you by Emmy Cheese, specialty cheese from Switzerland made with heart and passion. Since the early 1900s, Emmy has been a passionate supporter of farmers, cheesemakers, and family tradition. They believe in sustainable agriculture and respect for the people, land, and animals that make their business possible. Remaining dedicated to tradition, they strive to lead the industry in innovation, ensuring they bring you only the highest quality, best-tasting cheese from Switzerland. Emmy is best known for importing more than 80% of the Swiss Gruyere into the United States, but that's not to overshadow their other specialty cheeses, including Kaltbach Cave-Age cheeses, Der Scharfe Max, Appenzeller, Tete de Moin, and traditional Emmentaler. For more information, visit emmyusa.com. Hi, I'm Moxie Rosenblum. My dad, Harry Rosenblum, hosts Feast Your Ears on Heritage Radio Network. Right now, HRN is having a summer membership drive. Becoming a member is so easy, and you'll help support shows like my dad's. You can sign up for a one-time donation or become a monthly sustaining member by visiting heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Let's keep food radio on the airwaves this summer.
Welcome back to Cutting the Curd on the Heritage Radio Network. Listeners, if you're just tuning in, if you, you've downloaded this and somehow you're in the very middle of the show, is that even possible? Uh, okay, maybe not. I just turned on my car and here it was, halfway through. I don't know how that works with Heritage. Uh, but whatever, if you need to listen to the first half of the episode, or if you were so uh, delighted by hearing about this unique setup that they've got at Rainbow Grocery, uh, the largest... Probably just retail. The largest retail worker-owned cooperative uh, in the U.S. It's just been a fascinating discussion so far. So, well, I should say too. Park Slope always says they're the largest worker-owned because everyone who shops there is also an owner. Right. So we've had this back and forth. We we have slightly different. I um, like I like keeping <laughs> that kind of disagreement alive. Okay, well, I just don't want to diss them. I'm I'm on their side. Yeah. I love them. I think they're great. Yeah. There's there. I think <laughs> no there's co-op, space. No intra co-op drama. No, definitely not. <laughs> there's too few of us to uh, to have drama. And as a member of the Park Slope Food Co-op for ten years, I like. I think your definition is totally valid. (laughs) Okay, so let's talk a little bit about, since we were, you know, sort of left off on the cheese department at Rainbow, I'm sure that our cheese-loving listeners are going to be curious about how you curate that department and what it, what the look is like. So let's talk a little bit about how many cheeses do you have? What's the deal like? Why are you, what's your sort of philosophy as a buyer? How do you choose it? What's going on? Well, you know, we we carry, you know, it's funny, in our department, we actually also carry the fake cheese, too, so I should probably mention that. Oh, but you the, mean the fermented nut product, exactly. as, as I wanted to refer to it in my book, but yeah, wasn't allowed to? Cheese, you know, whatever we want to call it. But, um, but yeah, we have any time, any given time, we have about... 500 SKUs in our department. That includes wow. the crackers and the fake cheese and, and stuff like that. But, um, you know, we really try to have a mix. You know, we have cheese people. You know, we're an old co-op. You know, we have, you know, we have 40-pound blocks. I mean, in terms of volume, you know, what we sell most of is probably 40-pound block of mild cheddar or, or Monterey Jack. Totally. You know, sell for five bucks a pound, you know. And we got to have pe- cheese for people that need, you know, cheaper cheese to survive. Totally. Um, but then we also try to really... You know, we, we try to have it both ways. We also try to really represent, um, you know, great farming practices, great cheese making practices. You know, some things we, we love. We've always been a big supporter of Conte because, you know, only name control that has to be made in a co-op. Ah, like-minded. Like, you know, I mean, maybe somebody will know a different one and follow up. But uh, yeah, listeners. Of, but no, I, I'm going to trust Gordon's uh, knowledge on this topic. But, but we'll see. But you know, we really try to introduce. Um, you know, we really have. I mean, at this point, it's kind of introduced. But you know, for a long time, we really worked to introduce new American cheeses to into the market and really work on that, especially new California cheeses. Um, you know, and that, that's, that I think, not just us, but that's kind of mission accomplished. People know this cheeses now. Totally. <laughs> you know, so we try to work with other really, you know, as well as having all the basics and everything you'd expect, we try to pick out things that have um, good, that are good for political reasons as well. Mm-hmm. It's not, it's not the bottom line. It's not like we check people like who they voted for or anything like that. But, but you know, like if there's a great project that, um, that we think helps, you know, small farms survive or is a really interesting um, like biodiverse project of some sort, you know, we're definitely going to go try to support it. Very cool. You know, I think that that, that sort of lens, that filter, I guess, is not, you don't usually hear about buyers taking the moment to have that filter in their selection. So it's neat to hear that. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's, I mean, it's fun. I mean, you know, it's, it's like, I'm not, 
you know, some of that stuff you have the luxury of, you know, being in a very busy grocery store. So you don't necessarily right. need that stuff to make us a ton of money. You know, and somewhere down the line, it might be very profitable. So things have moved from being a project we wanted to support to being like, you know, a staple. You know, say something like Rush Creek, for right. instance. You know, when we carried that, you know, we were, we were in the first wave of West Coast stores who had that. Mm-hmm. Nobody knew what the heck that was, you know, and, 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 you know, but God, what a great cheese, what a great story, what a great yeah. practice. And um, No problem selling that one. Well, no, now it's like, you know, th- three weeks before it arrives, people start asking and we make a list, you know. It's <laughs> I love that. that problem, right? Yeah, <laughs> that's the best thing that could possibly happen. That task is highly sought after. Okay, so um, what, now that we know a little bit, you know, a lot, actually, a lot more about how Rainbow works and how this uh, worker-owned cooperative model exists, like, in your point of view, because you've been there since 1994, is that right? Yes. So, from your point of view, also living in San Francisco, which is the only other city I know of that's in as big of a constant, you know, magnifying glass of wage inequality and, and uh, the rent is too damn high and, you know, you're facing all the issues that we talk about all the time in New York City. Um, you know, do you feel like having a business of this, with this kind of business structure has helped you stay in San Francisco? Has it, you know, is it, how does it, how does it fit into the, the political, the kind of like uh, the larger dynamic there in the city? Well, I think that, um, you know, some things are always out of our control, right? I mean, I would say, uh, I mean, on before the before San Francisco started going so crazy, I mean, our turnover for a 200 plus person, you know, retail grocery store was under 10 percent a year. I mean, it was wow. really tremendously low. Um, at one point, the cheese department had five people who'd worked in cheese for 20 years. That's incredible. That's <laughs> unheard of. <laughs> you know, so all of that. Amazing. People want to stay um, for the most part. Unfortunately, you know, there's the reality of the the way that it is in San Francisco now. And I grew up in the Bay Area, so, you know, it's especially painful to me. Mm-hmm. But um, but we've I'm the only one of those five 20 year plus people left because uh, of the other four, three of them basically got gentrified out of the city, lost their apartments. Well, wow. uh, the other had been studying to be a librarian and she's a librarian now. But um, Great, great <laughs> thing to be. Li- you should have a, do you have, you had a show on cheese and library? Now, I have to say, I saw <laughs> a little like blurb that you wrote, I think on your, your website, ahead of your library, library tour oh, yeah, for your yeah. book. <laughs> and I thought, this is the most spectacular idea. The, the, the similarities between librarians and cheesemonger just yeah. The people, the world, the work. <laughs> yeah, well, there's your next show. Yeah, yeah we got to do it. it we got to yeah. do it. Thank you, thank you, Gordon. <laughs> what were we talking about? <laughs> <laughs> oh, right, yeah. But, I mean, you know, it's really, it's hard. I mean, it's hard, you know, first of all, the pay structure at Rainbow, which I didn't really talk about. Um, yeah, how does that work? Everybody starts at the same age. Um, and, you know, right now that's... Um, <laughs> What is it? We just changed it as of July first, so it's it's somewhere in the in the sixteens. Um, okay, and, and that do you do you also start people with benefits uh, after three months benefits? Got it. Um, you know, and there's other there's other things that you also not even just benefits, but other ways like you get money as well. But just keep it simple for this. You know. Okay. Um, but uh, but you know you get more money the longer you've been there, mm-hmm. uh, based on cost of living increases and based on. Um, you know, uh, a couple of raises a year, potentially. Mm-hmm. Um, but your pay is not associated with your job. So Interesting. Tell being, me more. If I stop being the buyer tomorrow, my pay rate would be exactly the same. Um, you know, if I was just, you know, picking up 
carts in the shop in the parking lot or you know up in the office doing HR or doing cheese buying my same my same wage is the same I love this because they, a lot of times I feel like the thing that boggles me most about sort of the more mainstream uh, uh, you know capitalist approach to business plans is like you're weighing the the value of different roles so differently you know and people when I whenever I bring this up in mixed company people always say like oh well that role is paid so much more because not anyone can do it and I always find that argument to be like pretty hollow (laughs) and it's just like not a generous way to do business so it's it's neat to hear about this that your wage really it's not connected to the specifics of the role that you play. Well, and I think that, you know, not everybody can necessarily do every job. For, Correct. For sure. I but do every, allow for but, that. But every job is valuable. Exactly. Um, and, um, and, you know, people have tried things out. I mean, this is another way of, like, you know, you can try out something, and if it doesn't work, you're not, like, penalized. You're not incredibly penalized. Right. Like, it, it encourages a culture of innovation in a way. I, well, we hope so. You know, it, it, um, it definitely, like, you know, you could apply for that job and work in the office just doing bookkeeping if we have an opening and you get hired. And maybe you're not the best bookkeeper. You know, so instead of the problem of them then having to, like, figure out a way to fire you, you know, you, they can, you can have a discussion or whatever and maybe move on to a different department. Right. Um, without any kind of penalty. Just wow. because that wasn't the job for you. I mean, that's in a perfect world. Let's, let's right. Say, I'm let's sure say there. Not every example is a perfect world example, but <laughs> right. I'm sure. I'm sure there's. You have your share of issues here. Okay. So tell us a little bit about like, what would you say would be is the top benefit of of a place like Rainbow and the structure, and maybe the the big the biggest downfall. Well, it, it, I'd say they're almost one and the same. Which is um, there's this joke that um, that some of us have had for years, which is the, um, the need to institute an oppression sabbatical, um, <laughs> which would be like, once you start taking rainbow for granted, you should go like work somewhere else for a year, <laughs> not be allowed to come back. Yeah. And then like, okay, after a year you can come back and then you'll appreciate it more. I think that, um, I think that sometimes people forget like how much the power is in their hands and how much they could take responsibility. Sometimes it, and honestly, sometimes it sucks. You know, yeah. sometimes it sucks when somebody you like, is doing something that is detrimental or potentially a legal problem. And, um, and you have to deal with that either through discipline or through eventually termination. I mean, that's no fun and there's no one to slough it off on. You can't be like, Oh, that damn boss, they got to deal with this problem. You know, you got to deal with it. Right. So that sucks, but it is also day in, day out. It's great to not have a boss. Yeah, and it's like that that element that sucks is like sort of a natural human element to anything that sort of is always going to be sucky <laughs> when humans are involved, I yeah. feel like. I think that, I mean I think that there the one thing that we really miss is, you know, sometimes, you know, there's a workplace camaraderie because your management is so terrible that everybody else gets along really well. <laughs> but like since everybody has like kind of fingers in different parts of the operation, you know, you, you don't have that, that crazy solidarity against someone. You have I, to find solidarity with people. I think that's a pretty good trade-off. I'm going to say you're better off. You're not missing out on so much, on something so awesome there. But I, but I would say that it's actually sometimes hard for people who haven't worked in a co-op before yeah. and start there to, like, they still think there's somebody they should be reacting to right. when they first get there. And sometimes it takes a few years for people to realize that there actually isn't, like, a boss. I'm, I'm sure <laughs> that's a huge adjustment. It's yeah. like rewiring the brain. <laughs> Um, okay, so since we're sitting here at ACS, we're at a cheese conference. We 
are. We are. Although I will say that Gordon and I are sitting, looking over another area of the conference center where there is a legit pinball conference happening. And we are, after this interview, I think we're going to try to figure out how to sneak into it. (laughs) But this leads me to my question of, I heard somewhere along the way in my research, I heard it mentioned that you also attend uh, worker-owned cooperative conferences. Is that a thing? Is that true? Um, well, yeah, you know, it's funny. Um, originally, way back a million years ago, Kathleen Shannon Finn tried to recruit me to be on the ACS board of directors. Uh-huh. But I was, um, and, and I wish I could have been. But um, at that moment, um, Rainbow was one of a few co-ops in the country that was trying to organize the United States Federation of Worker Cooperatives. Because, you know, the United States had actually never, has never had a formal organization for worker co-ops. Um, and one of the few industrialized countries that doesn't. In fact, for years, Canada represented us at the world conferences. For Unbelievable. It's kind of cool, actually, in yeah, some ways. Yeah, I mean, know? I like that, but also I'm <laughs> like... Canada. Thank, thank yeah. you, Canada. Thank you, Canada. And also, U.S. <laughs> what? But, um, but you know, because most of the co-ops here were, were consumer co-ops. A lot of them, I mean, this is generalizing, but a lot of them came from Scandinavian immigrants, started food co-ops. They're more consumer co-op oriented until kind of the there are exceptions, of course, but until the wave of the 60s and 70s. Um, but, um, but we, you know, I would get these calls. I was on the committee at Rainbow that dealt with people who had co-op questions from other stores, people who wanted to convert ah. to co-ops or who wanted to, uh, uh, you know, start a co-op. And we just didn't have the resources. I mean, we were, you know, we started in 1974 with, you know, people had probably had a few hundred bucks. They probably didn't, who knows if they even had a license. I mean, I'm not saying they didn't. I'm just saying it was a yeah. different time. Yeah, I'm not going to worry about that. You know, we don't need but, to worry about that. But, um, you know, like very little capital, right. they were able to like start this kind of thing. And that's just not the reality of the situation. But we don't have the experience with what a startup co-op would be in 2018, you know. Right. At this point, it would be 2006 or whatever it was. Um, uh, Rainbow, we actually sent eight people to Minneapolis along with uh, another 250 or so co-op people from around the country. Wow. And we um, we formed the U.S. Federation of Worker Co-ops. So I, was, I wasn't ever a board member there, but I was, um, I was helping start that and also a member of um, the committee that worked on our regional West Coast conferences because the U.S. Federation is kind of divided up into four regions. Um, and so we were trying to keep uh, a West Coast conference like vibrant and alive. So cool. we would have have national conferences every other year and regional conferences every Got other it. year. Got it. And and these were uh, all different types of businesses, not just right. food retail, right? No, food retail was in the minority for sure. Um, I mean, <laughs> you know, at that point, you know, at one point there was a lot of big co-ops. Unfortunately, a lot of them have closed down for various reasons, but there was, you know, good vibrations, um, right. mail order, you know, sex toys and et cetera. Um, there was uh, Alvarado Street Bakery, um, that's food, but, um, and then there was uh, Burley Bikes who made the bike trailers. Oh, and yeah. All of us were, um, you know, co-ops of size. Um, right. Who, you know, were over 150 members or so, or over 100 members. Um, and there's lots of other little ones too, but it was, um, it was a really interesting period, but now, you know, um, yeah, now now it's it's a little different. Um, things have kind of switched around. The the U.S. Federation is definitely um, out there as a resource in a way that we'd never had before. Uh-huh. So I don't get those questions from somebody in Illinois who wants to start a tech co-op that I have no idea how to help. Right. You know, I get to say you can call the U.S. Federation and ask them for help. Okay, so it's it's that's great for you. I'm glad that I'm glad I, it's, it's off your shoulders. I mean, yeah, I, I had nothing to say. I mean, I was like, yeah, awesome, great. <laughs> yeah, good luck. So, okay, so for any listeners that are, uh, you know, have might ha- 
be thinking about starting a business or, or already help to run or own business, um, they should look into, say it once again, the name of the federation. It's, it's the U.S. Federation of Worker Cooperatives. And um, there is technical assistance available. Um, they have like a whole series where they're training people to do technical assistance. Um, often, you know, it depends a little bit on the details, but um, often they have somebody who can help at least for a few hours to help get things off the ground or to see if things are working. Um, I mean, I think that really, you know, as we look at the consolidation of uh, the artisan cheese business, I mean, um, I would personally love to see, you know, conversion on the table as, as, as an option. You know, the problem is capital, of course, as it always is. There's right. still not a lot of capital in the worker cooperative movement. So um, being able to come in and, you know, build a new barn and build new, uh, you know, put in new vats and stuff, I mean, that's, that's a tricky thing. It would have to be worked out. Um, but hopefully we're getting there to the point where that's going to be more of a, of a real option. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think the interesting, you know, we've had a few shows where we've touched on these ideas. Andy Hatch came on and, and gave a little uh, sort of rah-rah challenge to the industry to kind of rethink the family-sized business sector at all points in the supply chain. And I think that this could apply to cheesemakers, to retailers, to distributors even, to, you know, to everyone who's involved in the industry. So it's very interesting ideas here, Gordon. Well. <laughs> Thank you for your insights. You were very welcome. You're very welcome. Oh, man. So, um... Also, thank you for taking time out of the business co- busy conference schedule to chat. I really wasn't doing anything today. <laughs> in my room. I don't know. Well, maybe pre-busy. I got things to do right now after this, but uh, but right. yeah, until now, you're my first thing I had to do today. Awesome. Well, this was such a pleasure and super inspiring. <laughs> Listeners, thank you for tuning in. We want to keep this conversation going, too. So if you have questions or ideas about alternative business models for the cheese industry, you can email us at cuttingthecurd at heritageradionetwork.org or tweet us at Cutting the Curd. We'll be back next week with more from the cheese world. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. I've been so rude. I've prayed each night for someone.